what is the origin of the word coach. And I had to look this up to make sure I didn't sound like a fool. And it's based upon like a 14th century village in Hungary or something called Coach. And they made these amazing kind of like wagon kind of things. And it was about how a coach is something that gets gets someone to where they want to be when they cannot get there themselves. And I like the idea that that's the word we use for a sports teacher. As in, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a professor. I am here and you are paying me to get you somewhere where you want to be because you cannot get there yourself. And so as long as you know where you want to be, and I can find the right communication to get through to you, which is entirely different across everyone in the gym. My job is to get you to where you want to be. And as long as you are with me on that journey, then we'll get there. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today, we have a special guest who's here to share his unique insights and experiences in the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Joining us is none other than Chris, the villain Pains. Chris, hailing from a small town in Middle England, has an extraordinary journey in martial arts. Starting his training at the age of 13 in Japanese jiu-jitsu, he has since become a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt under Preet Mikkelsen and an influential figure in the grappling community. Today's conversation with Chris takes a fascinating turn as we explore the intersection of wrestling and jiu-jitsu. Chris passionately argues that wrestling plays a pivotal role in the evolution of jiu-jitsu, emphasizing the importance of standing up from the guard as the new norm. In fact, his teaching approach has led him to focus less on traditional guard techniques in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. As the head coach of Fighting Fit Grappling in the UK, Chris's insights and perspectives on this topic are truly invaluable. We delve into his reasoning behind this shift and how it has reshaped his coaching methodology. Whether you're a beginner just starting your journey in jiu-jitsu or a seasoned practitioner seeking new perspectives, this episode is sure to provide you with thought-provoking ideas. Join us as we tap into Chris Payne's wealth of knowledge and experience discovering the symbiotic relationship between wrestling and jiu-jitsu and the evolving landscape of guard training. Prepare to be inspired and challenged in your own grappling journey. So without further ado, I give you Chris the Villain Pains. Chris, welcome to the show, man. Uh, good evening, morning. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I have no yeah. idea where we are. So It's a, it's a thousand o'clock right now for Chris in the UK. And uh, for me, it's a wonderful afternoon here in Marin County. <laughs> it is a, yeah, it's 11 p.m. here. So you can see I'm excited to be here because I've yes, stayed up yes. for this. Chris, first of all, man, I am a big fan. You know, haven't been a fan of Preet Mikkelsen for years and years and years. And um, check out episode 28. And you are a black belt under Preet, as everyone heard in the previous intro. One of the best things I've heard outside of his stuff that helped my game so much. It was one of those stupid game-changing kind of things for me. And I this I don't mean that in a bad way against you, but you said it on YouTube before. It was something really simple like, just don't let an opponent get between your knees and your armpits. Dumbest thing in the world, like wheels on a luggage type of moment, you know, was invented. And I'm like, holy hell, this stops a shit ton of stuff. I was blown away. Can you expand on that moment when you came to that type of epiphany? This is something I'm kind of realizing a lot more recently with regards to like standing up, which is like something I'm really pushing for right now, is everyone has been saying this stuff forever. Like uh, Running Man, which is, I assume if you got it from the, the How to Defend Everything video on YouTube about closing up that space. Running Man was in Jiu-Jitsu University. 
Like, so the Hibera brothers knew about closing up that space. Tellez knew about closing up that space. Everyone talks, you know, has been mentioned this idea. I mean, I went to a Ryan Hall seminar when he was at, I think it might have been around about the time of the 2011 ADCCs in the UK. And he did a seminar. And in passing, he said, all control is based who inhabits a space between the other person's knees and elbows. So this is something I, I heard six years before I even met Pre, and he wrecked me. And so I think the difference is, is compared to maybe how that was explained to me, maybe I was, you know, had a very white belt traditional jujitsu head on, but I think it took a reframing of how to teach jujitsu that made that settle in a lot better. So instead of it just being like a passing thing, like don't let people in that space, here's a shrimp and let's just do stuff from side control again. It was a case of, right, well, let's took away side control, and let's just do this instead and see if we can find side control. It was an interesting thing. It would have been the Arizona camp that we weren't at together, but Christian was there, and he was doing defensive postures. Christian um, referring to Globetrotters, by the way. Yes, Christian Graugart. And he did a class on defensive postures, and he talked about how when he, he was a, a was not drinking the pre-Kool-Aid for the longest time, and then was like, I can't really deny this anymore. And after seeing it, he was like, well, how do I go about teaching side control again? And that's maybe the, the, the bigger problem with, with adopting a lot of this is you have to step outside of the dogmatic approach and, and completely reevaluate how you're going to teach jujitsu, which that's maybe not consciously what I was kind of aiming for, because that's what we've been doing in the gym at that point of, right, ignore side control. We're not learning it as a position. We're going to try and inhabit the other person's armpits. And the other person's going to deny it. And one of the other things I mentioned too that I've heard you mention quite a bit in various videos is this notion of BJJ dogma. Can you give me examples of current day dogma you see? I think it's difficult in that it's obviously been done forever now in various iterations. And it always skirts around the periphery of so say like, you know, you're going to learn guard. If someone may start teaching you close guard or they may teach you half guard or butterfly, but there's always a guard involved. Usually close guard. I mean, it's one of Preet's favorite little sayings is, you know, he'd ask a question at his class and go, right, what's the first guard you would teach a beginner? And everyone says, well, close guard. That's like, every time I've asked that question since then, like I'd say 80% of the responses have, have been close guard. That'd be the first one. And you ask why? Because it's the first one you learn. Okay, why? Like, oh, it's simple. Is it? It's. It's. Like I said there's not really a concrete, strong answer for for each of these things. And the more new practices come out, as in courtesy of like some different coaches now coming to the forefront, like Lachlan Giles and and Danaher and Greg Sodas and and all these different people popping up. The old style is still quite pervasive. I mean, I went to a, a seminar with the guy who runs Reorg, Sam Sheriff. Super friendly guy. I love the messaging he has. Uh, and the seminar he did was triangle from close guard, passing the close guard by putting your knee in the middle of the butt cheeks. And everyone in the room loved it. And so that's what I kind of refer to as that dogmatic approach, as in the, the standard jujitsu fair, where you don't really step outside of and go, why are we actually doing this? Same as like how I said about Christian going, why are we doing side control and now we know that this is better? Like It's hard to, to step away and, and if you're going to chuck away side control, what do you put in its place? You know, it, it sounds to me like, and I, you know, I bring this up often, that it feels like we're still in the sort of the American football analogy here, a leather helmet stage of <laughs> this sport. 
in a way, and especially in terms of teaching, coaching, would you concur? It's interesting, especially with the, the rise of communication as it has been over the past 10 years with YouTube and improvements in just how we can communicate via this, but also how, how long jujitsu has been around now in that intelligent people are coming through, people who are capable of coaching, but it's by accident, not by choice. And so you th you know, I like the idea that what's the criteria for running a jiu-jitsu school normally? You look for a black belt, but what's the criteria for a black belt? Be an absolute badass. How is that any way related to being an effective coach? And usually we fall back on, if, you, you know, if you're just a, a, a badass teaching class, you fall back on how you were taught. And it's, it's hard to, to stray away from that because if I teach you how I was taught, you should essentially become like me eventually. But now, like I said, because jiu-jitsu has been around, great communication and intelligent people are coming through. Give it an a, analogy. So I used to work for the fire service and the way you'd go up in rank, so you'd start as a firefighter. I imagine it's quite usual with other militaristic organizations. You would start as a firefighter and then you'd, you'd show your capability on the incident ground, managing the incident and you know, balance and juggling so many different uh, balls at one time. Uh, and that's how you go up the rank, and then you become like a, a manager, a crew manager, or whatever the equivalent rank in the US is, and then you go up another rank, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously, you'd learn more organizational, you know, wide organizational skills. But it was based upon how you could manage an incident. But none of that was about managing people on a database basis. And I've had some utterly terrible, terrible managers, and I've had some brilliant ones, and it's not by design. It's almost the same as in you get there from being a badass on the incident ground, but you're not a manager. <laughs> and I'd liken it the exact same jiu-jitsu. Like we, we, we go through rank. I mean, I would happily take a smart communicating purple belt to a world champion black belt with learning technique. I've been to some seminars with world champion black belts and they've been pretty good. I've been to some and they have been a waste of time and money. And that's a whole different conversation for another day. What to you makes a great jiu-jitsu student? Um, what makes a great jiu-jitsu student? Hard question, really. There's, there's that old adage of jiu-jitsu is for everyone, but eventually it's just for a select group of savages. And I guess being in the game for 14 years now, I kind of like, you can, you can kind of tell when someone just has that little bit like edge to them. I've had plenty of, of guy, you know, people come through and they'd be like, you know, I want to, I want to get into MMA. I'm like, fantastic. Good, good choice of career prospect. And then they get a slight bit of pain through grappling and you never see them again. And then you come across, you know, and these are people who think, oh, they, they might be, they might seem tough or whatever. And then you come across people who you wouldn't assume as tough. They take a bit of a beating and they go, they go up and go again, please. Oh, you're crazy. You're going to be here for a while. And so I don't think there's a, a necessarily a, a perfect student as it were. From a coach's perspective, you've got to look at everyone who walks into the room and go, you need to ask them, you know, even if they don't kind of know the answer, what do you want? There's a fantastic like line, a guy called Martin Rooney. He's a strength and conditioning and a physical education coach out of New Jersey. And he did a, a, something about coaching. And he was like, what is the origin of the word coach? And I had to look this up to make sure I didn't sound like a fool. And it's based upon like a 14th century village in Hungary or something called Coach. And they made these amazing kind of like wagon kind of things. And it was about 
how a coach is something that gets gets someone to where they want to be when they cannot get there themselves. And I like the idea that we that's the word we use for a sports teacher. As in, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a professor. I am here, and you are paying me to get you somewhere where you want to be because you cannot get there yourself. And so, as long as you know where you want to be, and I can find the right communication to get through to you, which is entirely different across everyone in the gym. My job is to get you to where you want to be. And as long as you are with me on that journey, then we'll get there. So I guess conversely then, um, and you answered it quite a bit there, is uh, you know, what makes a great jujitsu coach, instructor, teacher? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I would happily take a colored belt coach who understands that message. Because the, the language of an athlete and the language of a coach are entirely different. Language of an athlete is how do I get to where I want to be? How do I get to where I want to be? Language of a coach is how do I get you where you want to be? And that's why it's, it can be quite hard to like develop that. That is, is completely different languages, how to do, how to develop that whole new language. And so if you're a coach who sees their students as just a way of getting further for their own career, then you're not a coach. A coach such as myself needs to be able to look at the student and go, right, where do you want to go? Do you know where you want to go? Can we, shall we investigate where you want to go? You know, have you just boarded this coach without a, like a, a clear ticket? And then we find out where that is, even if the destination changes, we'll get you there. And it doesn't have to be just jujitsu practice. I likened it to, so whenever I, I would promote a brown belt, I'd say the same thing, is that my ability to now teach you jujitsu has kind of ended. You know everything that I know. You are intelligent athletes. But my job now is to open the doors with the connections that I have. So if, if you have aspirations to be a, a higher level athlete, I will make connections to get you on shows get you those those starts if you are someone who has, who has aspirations to be on the seminar circuit and coaching i will set you up as lower ticket on camps and stuff like that so you can cut your teeth on that circuit that's where you want to be i can't do it with just teaching methods anymore i need to find something else that i can use in my skill repertoire to help you for those aspiring to become future coaches what should they be studying what should they be reading i think books on coaching and understanding that language if you've got higher in jujitsu and you're gaining those skills of those mat skills, it's now it's the communication. That is for the species that we are, everything seems to go wrong because of communication problems, which is daft because you think that's kind of what we should be good at by now. Yeah, a slight hiccup in communication, everything just goes wrong. For aspiring coaches, anything regarding communication, reading about communication, reading about actual coaching skills and caring about the athletes under your under your wing as it were i find it fascinating now that we're finally starting to talk about coaches and coaching outside of jujitsu like I, I hear a lot of people refer to experts in things like baseball coaching olympic coaching and like you bring up a strength and conditioning individual yeah completely i mean i remember when i was trying to get better at competitions for myself when i was still coming through obviously the you know jujitsu is, is still quite a young sport not just a young sport but an, a underfunded sport compared to nfl and stuff like that like it's a different planet and so i thought right well follow the money like well, who who has higher level coaches nfl and so i looked at you know i was, I was researching like different nfl coaches and seeing their points of view on competition mindset like if they're going to understand, you know, if they're going to understand operating under pressure, it'd be them. And so a lot of the, the the ways I understand about how to perform in competition is based upon reading NFL coaches. Weirdly, like it's it makes more sense. We are a new sport. We're still a pretty stupid sport because again, like we meatheads float to the top. 
powerful mat killers float to the top and they are then considered coaches and professors i mean how in god's name is it oh i watched you beat up all these people you must be a professor okay they can do it but what means they understand it like they're completely different things there <laughs> entirely different or communicate it i want to talk about your uh new instructional how to learn jujitsu everyone assumes we've learned jujitsu we're learning jujitsu although i've heard from a lot of people that it's been a bit of a sort of nebulous sort of path, especially early on. People feel oftentimes like, I don't understand what's happening. You know, I don't see a clear course from A to Z. Tell me about the instructional. First time we went out to Fanatics, we thought we'd only have one shot at this. Like, how the hell is this no-name individual from the UK got all the way out to Boston is recording on those hallowed mats? So we kind of threw everything at it. We thought, screw it. We've got one shot. Let's explain kind of everything technically that we do so it covered you know how to to differentiate it from the other from the youtube video it was called how to defend against everyone that was their marketing kind of twist on it and it was about uh, open guard it was about running man it's about the defensive postures it was about late and early defense to chokes and joint locks and to to be able to explain a lot of those things we had to look at it from both angles so like we we chose some random chokes to explain kind of all chokes and how chokes work same with joint locks uh same with positions same with guards you know, it was a very broad broad instructional and so when it came to doing number three which was unstoppable stand-ups with charles he'd been using this um this reverse wrestler's elbow frame to stand up and we'd adopt it in the gym and it had been one of the biggest changes to our jujitsu since meeting pre and learning about the defensive postures for the first time and so we were just completely fascinated with this and it was what came of the defensive postures was how to defend to turn the defense back into offense the problem is then is that we've just covered everything in defense in video number one and everything about turning it into offense is going into dvd number three so what the hell do i put in dvd number two and i realized i was looking at it from the complete wrong angle in a technical way again like you say like you know the the amount of language out there for how to learn what we do or different approaches to how we learn what we do is is quite sparse on occasions and it's only certain little weeds that are popping through now which which have different ideas so i was like actually what do we do like we've since we've adopted all these different things what we do in the gym is entirely different and we were talking about this the other day like if i was to meet any of my students at the level they at the belt they are when i was that belt i would have been terrified of them because like i said earlier if i teach them how i was taught it would take them 14 years to get to where i am which seems wildly inefficient. I'd rather get them to where I am in half that time, a quarter of that time, an increasing, like a decreasing amount of time. Like if I can do it, you know, if I can get one person there in seven years, cool, let's try for five, let's try for four. I'd rather get this dialed in. I mean, like I said earlier about this whole, you know, understanding, getting people where they want to be. One of the things they, you know, I assume most people want when they walk into a jiu-jitsu gym is to understand jiu-jitsu. Not just be able to do it, but know why they're doing it and, and be conscious of why they're doing it and, and be able to sit there and think, right, well, this happened and this happened and I could fix that and that instead of just being, coach, I have no idea what happened, just fix it for me. I'd like intelligent athletes. And so that means I have to improve my communication and change up how I do classes. Then I realized, so right, well, we don't show guard anymore it's becoming that unnecessary we don't necessarily we don't show shy control we don't show mount how do we actually frame what we could do now for white belts and from that grew this this dvd and this basically almost like a, a, a way of then again looking at it from a perspective of a potential person buying the dvd i didn't know i just like here you go this is what i do enjoy it was a case of right well 
you could look at any moment on this DVD and go, am I stuck on a plateau? How do I break that plateau? That would be kind of my goal, is to be able to go back to almost like the beginning of the DVD again and go, right, just do this again, and I will hopefully improve. And it's something that, strangely, now it's been codified as an, in this video form. I'm doing it, I'm going back to the beginning of the video and going right i need to redo that again and that's going to make me better i mean i'm i'm redoing my own white belt curriculum during my rolling to improve and it's happening almost on a day-to-day basis so yeah it was, it was a multi-faceted way of again like explain jiu-jitsu in a different way so it's not just a technical here's some techniques here's some concepts regarding techniques i want to look at it from a completely different angle of right here's why you're doing what you're doing and here's how it may break plateaus because the hardest feeling is sometimes is like getting to a point in jiu-jitsu hitting that plateau and thinking i don't know what to do to improve and you can ask all these questions like you know you're having people pass your guard a certain way how do i stop it but it's the wrong question sometimes because you still get stuck at that plateau you could be learning stuff in every single class but still go I don't know what the hell is happening. And the the goal of the video is to go, right, how do we break that? But I just couldn't think of a good name for it. Yeah, just to clarify people out there, this instructional will be on, or is on, excuse me, bjjfanatics.com. There's three of them. Another one he mentioned was uh, with Charles Harriet. Unstoppable stand-ups. There were several names for it, and Charles hated all of them that I kind of gave. So he calls it the elbow frame. And I think he wanted that for his own, like he goes into a bit deeper detail on his own personal one. We were busy that, so we're trying to think of the, you know, because there's just stand up, there's wrestle ups, there's all these different names from all these different coaches already. It's like, right, why the hell do we call it that kind of like still resembles something along those lines? And unstoppable stand ups seem to be what we kind of settled on. And it's based upon, again, a little bit of, of the white belt curriculum that I explain to people. Like on day one, it's like, I've been saying this quite a lot recently, is I'm not a big fan of guard currently. But yeah, unstoppable stand ups is, is Charles Harriet's way of, just getting back up it's it's wrestle ups but then so here's like more of the technical side of the the video and i'm explaining again like why and how you would learn it and how you'd fit it into your game instead of just being here's some techniques i think that's quite important i mean again like uh, i went to one of preet seminars recently and it was weirdly pretty much the exact same thing even though we haven't collaborated recently you know he's been very busy and i haven't seen him a lot he was doing the ex- his his sideways guard is very very similar to the unstoppable stand-ups about getting back upright again and he went he you know went to one of his seminars he was doing at a different gym and i was the only student from my gym and it was a bunch of guys i didn't really train with and some have you know been aware of preet for a long time shout out to john hand but you know the the, the content was you know fine good preet work as per but the problem with it was he gave them a solution to a problem they didn't have as in he's teaching them how to do get-ups from certain situations. But if I was to then ask them to go back into, you know, the great seminar guys, fantastic, thanks, Preet. Right, guys, we'll, roll, we'll get a round of rolling in and we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. I can guarantee no one would use it because it doesn't fit with their narrative of jiu-jitsu and they're going to go back to their guard pretty much instantly. And I, I said this to Preet afterwards, like, great. You know, I'd probably use it to an extent. Entirely worthless, though, by and large, because you've you've gave them a solution to a problem they don't have and so that's one thing i was aware of when when recording the dvd even though we recorded it before i saw pre i need to explain why you need this if you don't it's just dead technique again now this instructional is it for everyone or completely it's for everyone i i don't think i've met a person yet from all up to black belt i mean this is essentially a lot of it what i teach my day one beginners now instead of defensive postures i actually teach them this this makes way more sense 
which is so strange. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring, T-E-E spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at forever white belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. So no more guard. Everyone's probably scratching their heads earlier on in this conversation going, what is he talking about that we're not teaching mount? We're not teaching guard. What the hell is he talking about this? I and mean, this makes no sense whatsoever. Can you give us context? Deep dive into that. As you mentioned, everyone day one is close guard. Yes. It kind of came about because I like training with everyone when they first arrive. Even, at, you know, I don't like putting myself in the corner and just training with my most advanced students. Like if someone comes into the gym, no matter how big they are, I'm like, cool. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Let's roll. And over the years I've been doing that, a lot of the time, the techniques that I can use against jiu-jitsu students wouldn't work against new people, which is a problem then. And I'm not going to look at it as an, oh, they're just untrained. It's like, well, there's a problem in my technique somewhere. If it can work against jujitsu but not others, untrained people, which seems so strange. And it was a kind of like a, a realization of like the conditioning of what we do. Real quickly, Chris, when you say it wasn't working against these other people, does that mean you weren't sweeping them? You weren't subbing them? They were subbing you? What What does that mean? Both, as in from guard, it'd be a situation where I couldn't sweep them and they wouldn't just go over and they'd be doggedly trying to stay upright, like, as they should. And when it comes to submissions, especially like from like close guard, I and mean, it was always my favorite one before I kind of met Preet and learned about stacking properly, is that I do the, the regular dogmatic jiu-jitsu of, right, you're in close guard, you put your hands on the, the torso area and you posture up. And against jiu-jitsu people who do that, I've now got a system to be able to attack them. And then new people would come in, not have a clue what the hell's happening and just stack on my head. At which point I'd be completely stuck, unable to move. And I'd be like, no, no, no. Like, you know, if you want to pass the guard, you have to posture up like this and then they posture up and I get my attack on them and that seems so strange like I have to break the good thing that they're doing to put them in a bad thing to be able to get them and like left a, a bad taste in my mouth that kind of stuff like over time like that doesn't make any sense like how is what they're doing wrong then and how is what we're doing right if it's the breakable part and then pretty obviously explain oh yeah you can stack I'm like oh damn okay that explains a lot then like I have to be able to explore everything in this position from someone who postures to someone who stacks and it's it's always been that kind of that strange curve of you know I'm, I'm a massive user of these defensive postures and everywhere i've kind of traveled and i've you know rolled against very very decent people and black belts and it's not just inside my gym and i can drop into you know they try and pass my guard i go into running man and they don't have side control and you think right well that's then a problem like you know we haven't identified like how do we pass the legs but also control the body to be able to climb to the armpits you know i'm doing something weird and you can't break it and where it kind of led to then is is this idea of guard is these new people who come in and they don't in their head they think if i go on my back i'm going to get killed and so they don't go to their back and so you can try and hit them with every sweep and they just doggedly stay upright especially like in the uk we have rugby players who are who are very athletic in that regard so i realized my sweeps suck because they work on jiu-jitsu people, but they don't work against people who actually intend to be upright. And I realized that guard is essentially a parasite in that once you've kind of had guard drilled into you, as it were, you will accept going to your back easier than someone who thinks, 
why the hell am I going to go to my back? And that then causes a problem in the gym. And this is what I mean by it. it's it's a parasite that infects everyone and causes everyone to become ill. Because if everyone thinks it's okay to go to their back and flops to their back easier, everyone thinks they've got decent sweeps and it becomes theatre. It becomes an illusion. And then as soon as you come across someone who goes, no, I'm not going over, the whole gym falls apart. And so I don't want that to be the case that someone comes into the gym, does the right thing, and thinks, I'm going to stay upright. I infect them with this horrible guard parasite, and then they flop to the back and become just another useless drone in the gym that I can now sweep. But also the other aspect is, clear. I also think that guard is very complicated. What is jujitsu's usp unique selling point is guard it's the thing that we have compared to kind of anything else like it's our thing like wrestlers don't have a guard judo doesn't really have a guard they just you know maybe have 10 seconds of groundwork that's early ufc hoist gracie getting someone in guard in triangle exactly so it's our thing and so if we're not doing it it kind of like we're not doing the jujitsu thing like everyone's kind of been saying to me like since i've been talking about this a lot oh you're just wrestling like, no, but I'm, I'm submission wrestling, so I'm still looking after myself against submissions, but I'm just not doing guard so easily. Why is that so weird to you? When you talk about the guy that won't be swept, that just stays on top, that's a wrestler. Yeah, but that's a jiu-jitsu person. Um, that's what a jiu-jitsu person should be. I mean, the guard is there. You know, again, from a, from a, uh, a different point of view, what is the guard? Uh, is it, I've been taken to the ground and... I'm going to increase my weapon load from just my hands to my legs to save my life before you kick my ass. I'm putting the most powerful part of my body in the way of me and you. But I'm still in a situation where I'm about to get my ass kicked because I'm on the ground. And it's why, you know, we can look, people from an external kind of point of view, look at what we do and go, or you just get your head kicked in the street. Oh, no, 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 like, it was not like that. We'd be on top. Yeah, but you play guard a lot. And we do. And we, and we can't see how foolish sometimes it seems. And so, we, you know, guard is there because we cannot get up. We need to be able to look after ourselves. And so it's also, again, like I said, very complicated. And asking a new person who hasn't really got that kind of coordination with their body yet to be able to use their arms and legs in different directions on the penalty of death, that's crazy. I think that's a, a natural barrier to jujitsu. And the things I've heard since defending the guard sounds like i'm trying to break a cult open like oh what if you're a smaller person uh you should be able to you have to be able to play guard against bigger people no sorry if you think it's smarter being underneath a bigger person in general that's dumb like i def anyone who i've ever fought who's bigger than me i've fought like a dog to get on top of because there's no way on earth I want them in my guard or even with any potential of them getting past and smashing me up. And, you know, I'm not a small guy. I'm 90 kilos or, you know, 200 pounds, whatever that is. And I've still come across guys twice my size or 40 kilos heavier. And I'm, I'm like, I'm not looking at them and think, oh, ooh, big person. I better be on the bottom. I think, hell no. I, I ain't going underneath that guy. He'll crack my head open. So that's number one. And so, yeah, like, it's, it's all like, you know, what if the other guy's a Division One wrestler? Again, don't want to be underneath that person either. I better get really good at getting on top at that point because the last thing I want is a Division One wrestler smashing my chest up. Like, because if I mess up my guard, that's what's going to happen. It's so strange, these, these different, like, weird excuses that have come through to defend this position. It makes you think, right, there's an issue here. So removing the guard and just saying to people right well here's the elbow frame by charles harriet 
If your ass hits the floor, you get the hell up. You pull your bottom leg underneath yourself, you hip heist, you square yourself to the ground and you get back to your feet. Because it doesn't matter what you do from here on out, be it jiu-jitsu, MMA or self-defense, that is the right thing to do. Be the person on top. If at some point then we realize that you know you get to a point where you cannot get up, then there's a use for guard. But the interesting thing, like I said earlier about the conditioning of, of BJJ students, is that a lot of our guard passing, especially in gym jiu-jitsu, only works against someone who's willfully lying on their back. If, if I'm not controlling someone's bottom leg during a guard pass, and you have to think how many guard passes you're not controlling the leg that's closest to the ground, if they're angled, if their hips are angled, that person can get up. They can square themselves to the ground. They can, they can hip ice and they can just stand up if you're not controlling that bottom leg. And the amount of times I've been like, you know, people have been mid-pass through my guard and I've gone, now nah, I'm going to get up instead. And they look bewildered. Like, oh, that was an option? Like, yeah, you weren't holding me down. And again, it's, it's the reverse version of that whole, if you teach people guard, they flop to their back easier, thus making everyone's sweeps worse. If I'm playing guard and I'm not trying to get up, everyone thinks their passes are better. They aren't. And playing this against some people since adopting a lot of this, I've had people stop and go, I don't know actually how to pass guard then. Like blue belts and purple belts going, I don't know actually how to pass guard though. Because you decided to stand up instead. That's bonkers. Again, it's like everyone's screaming this right now. Every DVD in person seems to be coming out saying, we should be getting up. Why the hell aren't we getting up? Why the hell aren't we just wrestling up? Again, the disconnect is... We'll go, oh, yes, Mr. Jones. And then we just go back to doing close guard again. Like we, do, we can't reform our classes to, to make sense of new material because we don't know how we're co- to coach. <laughs> this reminds me a bit of the orthodoxy that Preet would point out, Preet Mickelson early on, about um, doing drills in the side control crossface, starting from there, you know, or even horrible turtles where you give all that space, you do these non-Preet type of turtles, and we're doing turtle drills, right? Yeah, we create weird battlefields and then we fight out the battlefield. Like you'd have your guard pass, you'd almost wait for side control to happen to then do the side control escapes. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. And like I say, it's, it's maybe because of the defensive postures has made me realize that, oh, there's a whole other avenue we haven't explored here. Like there's that middle ground between guard, getting your legs passed and side control, which is where the defensive postures live. Like, okay, you got past my legs. I'm just going to deny you that space. And it works brilliantly. And we then have to learn, right, as we're passing the guard, we need to expose that space. Similarly, this is another gray area that we hadn't kind of spent any time. Right, I've taken someone to the ground. How do I hold them down so they don't get back up again whilst trying to pass their legs? Because if I'm not doing that, they're going to get up. One of the early on sort of examples of standing up that I remember again with Preet is uh, this position he calls panda, right? Yes. So what he would do if someone's behind him, he would simply get up push their hands down if they got that double around his waist and uh, it's a wrestling move and i'm like he just yeah. stood up i'm like wow why didn't i ever think of that i mean strangely so i i recently had charles harriet in in my gym and it was an interesting moment i was watching him roll with all my blue belts and you know charles travels an awful lot and he trains with some very elite level people like he's he you know first name basis for you know some of Danaher's guys he's you know trained with Craig Jones and Lachlan he's he's always flying somewhere and rolling with someone really good and he's, he's from he's from you know Florida and there's a lot of really good camps like ATT around there so he's he's already had always had good jiu-jitsu around him it was interesting 
as soon as one of my blue belts ended up in turtle, he didn't go looking for hooks or anything like, or a seatbelt or anything like that. He grabbed hold of his leg and his head and pulled him back over again. And like he lifted his ankle off the floor, then pulled him back onto his back. And I thought, that's a wrestling move. Like you're not interpreting this person in turtle as someone who is someone you should take the back of and expose. You're thinking this person's on all fours. They're going to get up and you have to kill that. That's your instinctual response. I was like, that's interesting because that's what we've all adopted. Like since having to deal, you know, since kind of encouraging people to like, no, you're going to get up at every opportunity. Well, the way we attack turtle completely changes. And and so from being a, okay, I'm looking for sliding my hook in and trying to take you back to, I need to keep your ass on the ground for starters. And then maybe if you stay down for me, I'll look for some sort of better controls. But that's my first thing is I need to hold you down. And again, like you, a lot of the elite level gyms out there, that's all they're doing. And so again, there's that disconnect of what very, very good people are doing and what the regular jiu-jitsu approach is. And I don't think we're training the same. Can they though? Can the hobbyist, the general person who trains once or twice a week, can can they develop that? Yes. And again, it's one of those interesting arguments from doing this is when we first started playing with it, uh, some of my students asked, we used to have a wrestling night, a bespoke wrestling night that kind of got dissolved into the into the curriculum a little bit and just became another jiu-jitsu night. Is oh, should we put the wrestling night back on? And I was, no, I don't actually see a point of putting the wrestling night back on in that I don't want to separate out the two ideas of taking down, holding down and submitting. Like the taking down aspect, like we have the, you know, the, t- the stand-up wrestling and then we hit the floor, forget the stand-up, we're now on the floor and that's just a fight. That's how pretty much every regular local tournament goes. We have a stand-up fight, hit the floor, now we're going to fight down here. Instead of an idea that at all times someone can get up and you have to mat return them. They could try and get away. They could try and change the dynamic and be the person on top. You've got to try and go, nope, you're back on the ground again. And I think that's a much better way of actually learning how to do takedowns because you're not hitting the inertia of like accelerating towards someone and slamming them. And a lot of the, again, one of those things that I've heard is that people saying, well, I don't want to get slammed by people. Very true. I also don't want to get hard armbarred by people. But the only way they learn new ones is by practice. And so if you think that you're going to get slammed, but I can happily lift someone up and put them down gently because I have nuance and I'm not an asshole. Uh, I can slam them if they deserve it, <laughs> shall we say. But by and large, no, same as I can control my arm bars, I can control my heel hooks, I'm going to control my takedowns. And there's a lot less amplitude and a lot less inertia involved and acceleration because we're already connected. And we're in these random situations, these random clinches where I'm like half around your side or whatever, and I've just got to drag you back to the ground again. And I think that gives you a lot more experience with landing safely and also returning someone because instead of it just being one takedown, if you're lucky in a round of, of sparring and then that's it, it's just groundwork to three or four mat returns per round, the night becomes a lot more interesting. And I think it ha- you know, you can always temper intensity. You can always dial it down, but you shouldn't lie to your partners. I think that's kind of integral, as in, even if you're tired and, and just want to lower the intensity, you should still be doing the right thing, not just doing the wrong thing because you're tired, because then you're lying to your partner and you're giving them a false experience. They think they're becoming better than they are doing the thing that actually is wrong. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, you know, I kept thinking in my head when you were describing a lot of this, I'm like, he's talking about wrestling. This is wrestling. You know, this is wrestling. He's doing wrestling. All of these different disciplines, I assume, into this and bringing it to your academy, incorporating these things, and it becomes this this thing. We call jujitsu, but it's this amorphous sort of thing. And where I'm seeing more of that obvious too, and I think everyone is, is uh, ADCC. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I think jiu-jitsu is just a, a colloquial term for submission wrestling. If you had to explain the philosophy of jiu-jitsu is, how do I take my opponent down, control them? Dan Hur did a brilliant breakdown on Joe Rogan, what, four or five years ago, where he said, you know, what's the structure of jiu-jitsu? I need to take you down, step one, get you into the world of the ground. Step two, I need to get past the most dangerous part of your body that can kick me and stuff, your legs. Step three, I need to go through a hierarchy of positions. And step four, I need to submit you. Any part of those that kind of fail, you go for a leg lock. But that's the jiu-jitsu approach. And you think, that's him saying that five years ago. That's not what we're teaching in gyms. Like, we're teaching him to go lie down for us. It was actually interesting as well. Like, name someone who is a pure jiu-jitsu proponent who does well in MMA. There isn't. And it's it's almost like we, we are very much living in our history MMA doesn't use jiu-jitsu, it uses submission wrestling. It, it takes people to the ground, holds them down, submits them. It doesn't do what you see in normal jiu-jitsu schools and in the average jiu-jitsu school. Okay, that's a great place to learn about submissions, but a terrible place to learn how to do any sort of decent fighting. We looked at when the submissions happened and go, wait, jiu-jitsu. No, it wasn't. But we wouldn't have MMA if it wasn't for Hoist. That was 30 years ago. We're not that anymore. Like I'm sorry. Like we are, we are very much playing cosplay at this point, and the days of those horrible savages that very much could easily transition to MMA have long gone, by and large. It seems, um, you know, there's two main sort of contexts here. It seems like is one is self-defense, and then there's IBJJF. So sport. I mean, you could throw in ADCC, and that that becomes kind of another thing. But I would also say this isn't a necessarily bad game plan for IBJJF. Because how do you score points in IBJJF? On top. And if you're on your back, how do you get points off your back? Getting on top. So, and it was interesting as well, like, looking at it from a, you know, again, students going to local competitions frequently. Students who mostly play guard, it goes one of two ways. You either win by submission or lose by points. Because you're the person on the bottom, you can't score points off the bottom. You've got to use your guard. Okay, absolutely. Like, you know, the jiu-jitsu rule set and the scoring system means you ha- you can't just reverse up and stuff. You have to use your guard to be able to get up to score the points. But still, all my points are scored on top. I pass your guard, there's three. I get mount, there's another four. Everything kind of screams, I should be on top. MMA, self-defense, and sport jiu-jitsu. We get into the, the reads when you get to a super high level, finding advantages and shit like that at Worlds. But local tournaments, which again, like unless you have aspirations of being at Worlds, at Black Belt, you want to be doing well in local competitions. How are you going to want to do that? Train to be the person on top. There's that IBJJF stat or whatever it is. 80, 80%, 90% of whoever scores the first takedown typically wins. Yeah, I remember that study. It was from a few years ago, wasn't it? They kind of like, whoever scored the first point, which again would have been a takedown or a guard pass or a, ta- uh, or a sweep off the bottom to get on top. Yeah, won. Again, it's nuts. I think we have all this information saying we should not be encouraging people to be on their back, essentially. And I don't know if oh, I'm going to get hate for this, I'm sure. And I need to really sort out my head when it comes to this. No, put it out dirty. We want to clip it and begin viral hate. <laughs> Everyone can hate Chris and we get lots of juice. I'm already there. But <laughs> anyone who kind of bitches at me that all this makes it harder. And like, it's a combat sport. If you want to go do shit that you, you know, you're lying to yourself over, Aikido's around the corner, or the Aikidoization of Jiu-Jitsu, but I shouldn't be lowering my standards because you don't want to up yours. And if, if it gets harder and it's it's miserable, yeah, people are getting slammed around, not slammed around, but taken down and all these kind of like, well, we can't just lie on our back and just roll. No. Like, you can either do this honestly or 
we can we can take the fact that it's becoming theater and this weird non-combat sport that it's becoming go do that fine but if i've seen behind the curtain i'm not i can't go back there for the time being sorry reddit <laughs> that's gonna Ooh, be that's a problem the thank you <laughs> on the stick we love it <laughs> So defensive BJJ, I want to talk about that for a while because a lot of the critique of defensive jujitsu, and I don't know how much you you know what you think about it now, has been that okay, I'm great, I'm great at the the pre turtle, all the all the you know the postures, running man and Hawkins and everything. How do I transition to offense? That's what a lot of the critique it tends to be when you just learn that. Where's the switch? I kind of like maybe deviated from pre a little bit when you started to introduce Hawkins. I'm I'm still a massive proponent of of Running Man and Turtle, Hawkins, eh, not as much. And a lot of the people I kind of heard from, even people who don't kind of directly follow me, like you know I I scour Reddit sometimes. Is Hawkins is kind of the first thing they abandon. And then again, I realized that right, what is Running Man if not getting back halfway onto my knees again, so I can get back to my feet and get the hell up. And so it kind of blends automatically into whatever thing I've just been saying is that instead of playing a situation where, oh, again, it's so interesting he said this. The seminar I referenced earlier that recently I went to for pre said that, you know, essentially it was like, okay, there was a sideways open guard thing. They've kind of like standing, passing my guard. I turned to this position and it allows me to pull my bottom leg free and get up while facing the other person. And he finished the seminar by saying, this is probably what I teach beginners because guard is too complicated. And if I teach them to shrimp, they'll go back to guard. And I was like, yes, again, we're all saying it. And so learning running man kind of made sense because that was kind of the opposite of a shrimp. As if I turn and face you, I have to shrimp and that's going to lead me back into guard. I'm still on my back. But if I turn away, I can close up the space, go turtle and, and get out and get on top that way. And so that's kind of all, you know, for the past six years or whatever it's been now has kind of been the messaging behind it but still stuck in normal jiu-jitsu land to an extent. And now Turtle worked really well against people who try to do the jiu-jitsu thing and were just fighting on the floor. And again, it's so funny, Pre even said this, you know, when he first showed us Turtle five years ago, is if I'm in Turtle and they're not holding me down, why don't I just get up? And it's like, we've been saying this for and we're all saying this for years. And so that's, the answer's always been there about how do you turn the defense into offense? Not in maybe newer positions like Hawkins, but definitely the older things like running man and turtle. The answer's always been there. The way you turn the defense back into an offense is by getting the hell up again and using this. I mean, wrestlers have been doing it for thousands of years. You know, it doesn't matter where or when in human history we've always wrestled as a species. Separated by thousands of years, thousands of years and thousands of miles, we always hit the same conclusion. A person on their back is dead, which means if you can land on your front, you can get back to your feet and carry on fighting. Then Jiu-Jitsu turns around and goes, no, we should stay on our back. And like every single one of our ancestors is currently looking at us and despairing from wherever they are. Like, what are you doing Great, 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 great grandchild. You, you are ruining our family. Get off your back. It's been right there. This is what these positions are. I'm denying you the space in my hips and armpits, which is essentially, again, it's so frustrating. The main control points of wrestling, upright grappling, are behind the head, in the space between the hips and armpits, definitely up into the armpits, and behind the knees. What are the defensive postures, if not denying those spaces? Running Man is just a fallen over wrestling stance. Nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm denying you the same spaces that I'd deny you if I was upright, so I can get upright again. 
and that's how you turn the defense into offense and just understand that's what it is it's i'm hiding these spaces that i should always be hiding if i know how to stand up to return to get upright again because i'm on my feet why aren't i getting up one of the things i want to touch on that we we sort of did there as well is um where you deviate from preet for example, and I heard you mention before, grilled chicken is gone. And then here we are with the recurring thing of instead I just get up. And can you please give some context of what grilled chicken is for the listener? I feel like some sort of weird profit because everything I've been talking about recently is this one subject. But I'm like banging it so hard. I'm like, why aren't we all doing this? Like it's all there. We should just be doing this. And if I say it long enough and loud enough, hopefully someone will listen. Again, like grilled chicken as an idea isn't wrong. It just is complicated and has a specific place of I can't get up and I need to use my feet to defend myself. But that is under the proviso that I couldn't get up. So that's where it sits, which means that if I can get up, which is way simpler, that's what I'm going to go for first. I, I kind of liken it. I've been explaining it recently in class as like a, a fortress. And, you know, the outer wall is me, you know, my ass, you know, hits the floor, I get up. I elbow frame, I get up. The inner wall the next layer of defense, if they breach the outer wall and they ca- I can't get up, is grilled chicken. I have to be able to play guard. If I can repel them back to the outer wall and get up again, fantastic. But now I'm in guard and I have to be able to stop you from passing my kneecaps and passing my guard. If you breach my inner wall, you're now going to hit the, the keep, the castle walls, and that's my running man. <laughs> and so there's so much nonsense you have to break through to get to side control. Compared to if I just lay on the floor and I just let you pass my legs and wait for you to get side control and then fall back again. Like it should be exhausting for the top person to get any sort of level of control over me. That's the intention. And the benefit of doing that is it makes everyone better in the gym. We have to have thorough control throughout. I take you down and I keep you down. I also pass your legs, your grilled chicken, and you're doing the right thing, keeping your knees next to your armpits, etc., and shutting down the space that I want. And if somehow I find my way through that, I'm then going to have to smash through your armpits and rip you onto your back to stop you from getting to running man and getting up again. That makes me a better grappler on top. And it's also one of the reasons why I've kind of abandoned submissions for a bit, teaching them. <laughs> Which again, like, that's caused pushback. And now I can sit there and I think, what have, what have I become? And that's because, again, if I, if I teach people that a submission is the win, especially in early phases of jiu-jitsu, when you're in your, early in your career, God, when you want it the most, though. Oh. I know. That's the selling, <laughs> you, again, the USP, when you I won't be able to annihilate you're, someone. You're taking the candy away. Yeah. Exactly. But the problem is, is that it'll, it'll rot your teeth. If you think that the submission is the win, you will throw away good position for the submission. Like, you can be making so much progress and go, ah, there's something I can get, and you'll jump through the air to find it and hopefully get for the win and end what's happening. And if you fuck up that entry and lose a submission, you've thrown away everything, it wasn't until I read it on the inside of a 93 brand jacket that I finally understood what position before submission went, meant. It was because it was written, word position slash submission written underneath it. And I kind of read that, yeah, one day I was sitting there early morning probably going, position over because it's on top of submission. And I was like, oh, I should choose position over submission. And then it reminded me of Roger Gracie and thinking, how did he always win? Mount choking people. <laughs> I remember like an interview of Ryan Hall where he said like, you know, if you're on your back playing guard, that implies you have better skill than the other person because they're upright and they're mobile and they have gravity on their side. How did Roger Gracie win? He got the hell on top, got gravity and mobility on the side and then beat you and used his skill against you. And I was like, of course, 
position over submission. I should do it this way. And then, you know, that kind of then morphed into why if I teach people submissions, that's what they're going to go for over everything else and throw away their positions. And but if I teach them right, no, you hold position and you drown people in position. If submissions are, you know, are there and you're not going to give up too much position, fantastic. Still drown them. Because if you fail, if you lose your submission, you still haven't lost your position. You can still drown them. Do not throw away everything pointlessly and end up on your back. I'm going to ask you a very specific question. Give me your thoughts on, or maybe it's not, neon belly. It's not a pin in my world. So I see it as, oh, another. Oh, you've opened up all the worms today. <laughs> well, I asked, I asked Preet this, so I wanted to get your feedback before I you know, say anything else. Oh, he has an answer. Oh, let's see where we differ. I haven't even answered that question yet. I need to come back to that question about where we differ. So there's two parts to this then. So with the whole neon belly, again, it seems odd to say this out loud, and this is how I always phrase it. Whoever's got the higher hips is the person on top. Sounds stupid. Whoever's on top is on top. But it's amazing how much you let your hips drop below the other person's. Say, you know, I've got a mount on you, and you roll slightly to your side, and I think, cool, back take time. I take your back, but I roll onto my back. Now you've got the higher hips. And if I lose the hooks and control, you're now on top. And it was interesting. I was watching uh, Habib versus Connor again. There's a certain point where Habib takes Connor's back and his back hits the floor. And the second Connor starts turning, Habib completely aborts the position and gets back on top of him again. And I was like, he was taking the position for giving up his position for the thing that he wanted. But as soon as it didn't become viable, he chose to abort early so he could get back on top again. And so the way I see Neon Belly is it's a floating position. If I can't hold you down and pin you with like effective side control and pressure or whatever and control your armpits, and I just need to float on top of you. And I think riding you with my shins gives me quite a lot of feedback, especially because it's everything you want to do is going to go through your hips first. Like You can't hide your intentions from me. Because your 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 hips are your your engine house, and if your engine starts cranking up, I know you've got plans, and so I use the hips mostly then as a way of feeling your intentions early, like you know, intrinsically reacting to them, and floating on top of you. And as long as I keep my hips higher than yours, I couldn't really care what you do. You can roll around, roll to turtle, uh, flick your legs, scream. I don't care. Like move as much as you want. I'm just going to ride around on you. And when you finally get a bit sleepy, I'll come back down to earth and we can talk again. And see, that's why I, I don't see Neon Belly as like a, you know, the, the old school kind of, I'm going to come some heart surgery with my blunt force knees. It's more of a, I'm using this to float instead. So I'll say one thing, you know, Sven Groten, um, he said all, he, it's a riding position. You know, it's just a ride, like a knee ride, basically. And then uh, uh, Preet said he wasn't a big believer in it, you know. And it was really interesting because I know on DefenseofBJJ.com, he he had like this experimental section for a while. And he was doing these sort of neon belly experiments in terms of just like escapes and, and things like that from it. It was like, so whenever I do anything regarding neon belly, we, we get the gym balls out. And we almost do the Jeff Glover kind of approach of, right, ride around on this gym ball using your knees, using your shins, and develop that balance for riding. And so Neon Belly for a pin, terrible. They're going to get out. Like, you're going to fail. Neon Belly for floating, very useful. But again, you know, I, I did his escape from Neon Belly class at the Austria camp back in January. And essentially it was about turning and wrestling up again, which I think is hilarious. You've got very terrible control for pinning someone down. They're just going to wrestle up. I said about where me and Preet differ, you know, answering that question, is even though I'm a 
black belt under pre. I didn't learn under pre. I'm self-taught for the first 90% of my jiu-jitsu career. I got to brown belt before I met him. I met him the same week I got my brown belt, which meant I got that entire way not knowing him. Or I met him at his first Globetrotters camp. You know, he, he was very much in the SBG ecosystem at that point and hadn't really branched out of it. And so, you know, there wasn't any much YouTube about him or anything like that. Just those who knew, knew. I didn't know. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of my understanding of Jiu-Jitsu had, had formed before him. And then, you know, seeing the defensive postures for the first time and meeting him, I was like, oh, what I know is crap. I'll ditch that then uh, and adopt some of this. And so it wouldn't really be hard for me because, you know, I, I talk about a lot, you know, a lot of good of what he does, but I'm also not one of his direct students. And so it's easier for me to deviate and see things differently. And I've said this before in, in different places that I didn't have a coach. So the only way I learned was books, YouTube and traveling around and meeting different people. And if something worked, I'd take it. If it didn't, I'd abandon it. Or if I found something better, I'd abandon it. So I've never been held to any sort of like, this is the, the Carlson Gracie way, or this is the Gracie Baja way. I'm like, this is the way that works. And if it, this works better, this goes. Because I'd only learned random techniques, you know, with, with space in between, I had to see techniques in a way of how do they relate? If I saw a sweep and thought, why is that sweep working? Why is that sweep work? I try and like, you know, there could be different sweeps taught by different coaches in different parts of the world, months apart, but I'd go, right, well, what makes them connected? And it was, it was first in the Kit Dale, Nick Gregoriadis DVD that kind of made me think, right, there's connections between a lot of things then and made me explore that. And then that's how I kind of was able to tie what Preet was doing with Grilled Chicken Open Guard about keeping that denied space with Running Man and going, it's all the same position. So why I just need to deny, deny people that thing from everywhere. Again, just because I maybe sorted things differently. And we've had this conversation before, like Preet and I, because you know I used to talk about a lot of the same things that he did. And he said, you know, I don't know how comfortable I am with you showing what I'm doing. I'm like, well, I'm not showing what you're doing. You're very, very, very good at detail. I suck because I've never had to look at detail. I'm good at maybe explaining how things connect in a more holistic approach. So we bounce off each other. People can look at your stuff and go, right, I get what I should be doing, but I don't know why I'm doing it. They come to me or they can go, right, I get why I'm doing this, but I need to like go into the, the minutiae now and they'll look at Preet. We're not in competition with each other in that way. Well, I remember when Christian was starting to explain um, Preet's stuff initially too. He was <laughs> saying, you know, being very blunt about it. He's like, hey, Preet just talks too much. He's just verbose and I'm going to condense this and make it a lot more digestible, <laughs> you know, without going on long talks about boxing or whatever it may be. And that's how I found you and Preet, my being able to go back and forth with the content of your content and his content regarding the, that type of defensive concept where it helped. I could go to you and not get the, you know, the long Danaher type of explanation and um, digest it better for someone like myself where Preet stuff I'd have to watch over and over and over and over again to get it and it helped once I really got it. Exactly what I said to him at that you know what I said about after that seminar like great content loved all the little details probably going to take them useless like because you haven't given the why and they're not going to use it because they haven't got the why like that's again where I'd step in I'd go right this is why we're doing this Oh, okay. Right, pretty. I know why we're doing this now. Can I get those details again? There's definitely a, we're not doing the same thing and yet we kind of need each other for that reason. I, again, probably one of the best examples I've seen of someone like uh, convincing me of something is when you said, yeah, the whole, again, the whole don't let them get between well, even elbows and armpits example that you showed before too was, yeah. um, look, look what they can do. Even with the gi, you know, when they have one arm and they don't have the other one, you can spin. You can even yeah. hand fight. It's like just stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, 
You know, that's the quick yeah. parlor trick where you see it and you're like, oh, now we can get into like the minutia. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And it's weird as well because it's, it's fascinating to me is that I've had a lot of messages of people who adopted. You know, that, that video is still the most watched Globetrotter video. In I'm action. sure it is. Yeah, <clears> much sure. higher than Preet. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> in your face, Preet. <laughs> um, but I'm his advert. I'm the advert that, you know, people watch his, my stuff and go to him. It's been in the past, like, I've gone done, like, you know, gone visited people, like, in London, for example, and they've gone, like, you know, I've rolled and, like, wound everyone up, and they've gone, oh, that was awesome, like, so how much is Preet for a seminar? I'm like, well, I know it too. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, great, but how much is Preet? I'm like, oh. What's your off-the-mat study time, and what does that look like? I do not do anything off the mat. So I, I approximately do maybe up to 20 to 30 hours of jiu-jitsu a week. And when you factor in podcasting, when you factor in doing videos, when you factor in rolling and teaching class and privates, I do a lot. I, I do anywhere between 20, 10 to 15 privates a week on top of classes. I do enough that if I was to go home and carry it on, I would lose my mind. The second I kind of almost get home, it's like, right, and I, I'm not doing any recordings or podcasts. I'm like, I'm out of the jujitsu sphere. I'm going to go do some gaming. I'm going to go go rock climbing. I'm I'm going on the bike or go lift up some shit. Like all my kind of open tabs on my phone have nothing to do with jujitsu. Like, it was just relieving sometimes, and then I can get back in the gym kind of refreshed. And maybe that's what kind of holds me back sometimes with regards to like putting out content. It's like great. I'd love to put out another video this week. I've just done 30 hours of rolling on jujitsu and private it's like i need to step away from this sport for a little bit i always make the uh, the example of like the the donut store owner who's owned the donut store shop for 14 years the last thing they want to eat or snack on is a freaking donut and that's how that's how i sometimes feel like you know sometimes it's gonna be a bit you know i can get a bit more momentum but other times i'm like no we're good like i just want to go on the bike like leave you just at the door like you kind of said earlier you know what would you ask a a new coach you know, what would their preferred reading be? Because a lot of the people I teach are beginners, especially in privates or like blue belts. It's rarely kind of any kind of higher level belt. I'm trying to explain what I'm doing in the simplest terms. And so I'm, I'm always practicing my my communication skills. Now, you know, they come in and go, what's the problem? How can I help? Oh, this has happened. Okay, right. Well, I'll try and find the best way of getting you to understand how to fix this. It's the importance of communication. So it makes me wonder, you know, uh, speech classes, learning how to teach, uh, to actual maybe teacher's degree or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Play the game long enough and some teachers will come through. And now we have some very, very clever people teaching jujitsu, way better than we've ever had. And the, the sport is going to grow because of it. I find it so strange that I'm ever considered in that mix because so I was a firefighter. I put wet things on hot things. How am I in any way qualified for this? and explaining things to people i'm not but if people find use out of it then great i'll keep doing it can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit and why i've wanted to quit jujitsu probably once a month or at least once every couple of months since i started you have those nights where you just go home and you're like fuck this fuck this sport i'm tired my body hurts and it's taking up all my time and my resources and I just want to do something else. And I think for a period of time, what kind of broke me through that plateau, because in the area that I was in, it was sparse for jiu-jitsu. You know, I was about to travel some distance to like, meet to see a black belt. I could not be asked of that. I had work and you know, a new child and, and traveling around doing jiu-jitsu just didn't make sense. And the gym was small. Like We pretty much started from scratch. And so sometimes I'd go to the gym, I'd travel you know, out of town 
to where the gym was and no one would be there i'd open the doors no one would come i'd lock up the doors and go home or like one person would show up if i was lucky and you know if six people showed up it was a party those nights then just you feel defeated but it was because i had the key i was like no if i stop this dies i will keep coming for that reason and that kind of dragged me through those darker days and then everyone has down days and and it's and i maybe just sit there afterwards and go well what would i do instead <laughs> if i was to like sack this off now and go nope not going back to jiu-jitsu and like weirdly enough like you have that weird saying that blue belt's the belt that people leave jiu-jitsu and you try and figure out why that is and you think what's the average ish age that someone joins jiu-jitsu early 20s maybe that is the period of your life when you are most in flux you're going from you know education to a career or a job to a career you're going you know moving from uh, lower education to higher education and you know moving across country and stuff like that you're meeting your you're going from just low late level relationships to like a serious relationship you may look at getting kids and it's all the things kind of happen in that years and it always like a couple of years you know you do something in a couple of years it's going to change and requires a change in your life in quite a substantial way what normally takes a couple of years to also accomplish blue belt most of the time if i see a blue belt leave it's because one of those life got in the way Older people who can kind of get into a sport and then, you know, their life is kind of settled, they stick at it a lot longer. Like if you're in your career or you have kids and you have a decent, you know, stable relationship, they're the people who stick at jiu-jitsu much longer, not the people whose life is still kind of moving around. Like most of my students that I've lost weren't, you know, leaving because of jiu-jitsu reasons necessarily. You know, everyone has their bad days and it's easy to like, you know, just stop or whatever and have a couple of days off or, you know, and then life kind of fills the void left by jiu-jitsu. But someone who, you know, seriously leaves, it was because life took them somewhere else and a child arrives and it's like, right, that's it, that, you know, that, that takes precedence for the next six to eight months or year. Then getting back into it's hard. And yeah, I think because of being fortunate and that I could, I could balance ish family work and life i was able to carry on with jiu-jitsu you're traveling all over the world with globetrotters and you got the family at home i mean and you're doing these thousand hour podcasts in you know in the middle of the night how are you you know spinning all these plates and i'm not even talking about your own entrepreneurial stuff i had to sack something off and i think it was sleep that's how i've done it like something had to give uh sleep was the thing that guy gave I have no idea. I'm I'm fortunate, I guess. That's it. I, I'm I'm fortunate to be able to construct this path that I have and it's worth it. The first Globetrotter camp I went to was one of the very first Globetrotter camps. It might have been the second or first. I can't remember which one. Christian did an interview at the camp and it didn't make it onto the interview at the end. It was cut uh, essentially because the I was there for the recording because the, the videographer who was, you know, the guy doing the interview, he brought his camera but didn't bring a tripod. You know, he brought a monopod. He needed to hold the camera so he could record and ask Christian the questions. But he didn't want Christian just looking at the camera, so he needed to, Christian to answer off-camera to someone else. So I literally just sat there and just acted as a face for Mr. Graugart to answer questions to from someone else. So I remember being a white belt listening to all this, this black belt, you know, and, and one of the questions, were, um, one of the answers, one of the things that Christian said was, Jiu-Jitsu is a brilliant vehicle for seeing the world. It's a brilliant vehicle for life because no matter where you go, there is someone who you can, you have that role with, you have that dance, you, you know, you trust them. 
Jiu-Jitsu and rolling is like a dance in that you realize your chemistry with someone very quickly for this physical motion. And if they dance like a dickhead, then you're not probably going to be friends with them afterwards. But if they, you know, you dance well and you trust them and it, you know, it feels good and you know, you can like, you know, it comes out the other end, like, oh my God, we're best friends. Let's go for a dinner. And that's the same with Jiu-Jitsu and this vehicle for the world is no matter where I've been, you can have that role with someone and know them on that level that you know they could take you to a place where they could, they could hurt you badly but they haven't and oh my god let's be friends and it's taken me to some of those places that i never thought a kid from mid staffordshire england would end up in <sighs> rapid city south dakota in what universe would i've ended up in rapid city south dakota but i loved it and it's that kind of like you know spiritualist moment of going how the hell have i ended up here and just being able to like you know you might see on the, the if anyone's got the video up the wall next to me just reminding me of all those people and all those places that i've been and it's like i sit there on my computer and i'm just like yeah that's pretty kind of amazing for me it's been fascinating to talk to you globetrotter guys because you know being a spoiled california kid here and having jujitsu everywhere you know and having you know it's like a 7-eleven here and you know on every corner but, you know, meeting these guys that and, and women that haven't had formal coaches or whatever, and they were just sort of these Ronins bouncing around and converging under this Globetrotters thing and Christian and yourself, as, as people heard in the intro of your belting through Christian, right? He belted you up to what, brown or, or something yeah, like yeah. that? And not only that, but like the convergence of all these, these black belts that come from all over the world and they come with all this different knowledge and then you guys all separate again and you guys all go learn stuff and then you converge again. It seems like it's such a a neat network of uh, sharing information. Have you learned a ton from all of these people each time? Or what has that been like that download and that upload? How would I have known about defensive postures and everything like that if it wasn't meeting Preet for the camp? I met him at Copenhagen 2017. Charles Harriet. I wouldn't know him in his elbow frame if it wasn't for Heidelberg 2018. Christian Graugart and, and his G-spot guard passing and not letting people pass your kneecaps. That was Leuven 2015. The amount of people I've met through the camps and these intelligent coaches. Again, I think what what is interesting is, you know, I was there very early on. And in those early camps, Christian would bring in big names, like the big sporting, you know, well-known athletes. And they always had the worst part of the seminars. Again, like, you know, fantastic at what they do, but their way of teaching just maybe didn't gel with me. But then you'd have these, like, unknown dutch black belt and then they teach you something and then you go my god that is genius and preach prime example like you know again it's weird that people look at people's competition record to see how good they are at coaching again it's because it was stuck in that idea that black belts should be badasses or like you have to be able to show it yourself or your team members should be able to show it um slight sidetrack here but i'm like so what's the criteria for being able to like especially from someone from england if you want to go succeed at worlds which is like the, the, the milestone for a lot of these, or ADCC. Okay, right, so I need to be able to train an awful lot. Okay, so I need a gym that can be open a lot of, a lot of the time. I need to be then funded because I need to be training a lot. So I need to have some money somewhere that's helping me out. I need to be able to fly to Vegas from the UK for a potentially five-minute fight and justify that to my family. In the UK especially, we've had austerity for the past... 14 years whatever it is since the recession so like, how do you justify any of those things and then like you know especially in some of these northern towns in the uk fantastic athletes coming in but the, the chance of someone who fits all that criteria and then that defines if it's a good coach or not so it's like if that person helps and again people look at it and go right well you know did you do well at worlds do you want to do well at worlds 
is that where you want to go? Because if it is, then right, well, I, you know, that's what I need to be as a coach. But if you just want to understand jujitsu, do I need to have won at Worlds or got someone to Worlds to help you understand jujitsu if it works for you? No. So again, it's that reframing of like, we're asking the wrong questions to the wrong people. But going back to that thing about the Globetrotters is that a lot of these smart communicating coaches started to appear at these camps. And now there's pretty much no high level athlete kind of appearing at the camps. It's all intelligent coaches. And the stuff that then comes out in action is fascinating to me. Like some really smart guys, people you wouldn't really, you know, you think, look at any of them. None of them have got decent competition records or maybe teams of decent competition records, but they're all like people you go, wow, I am better at jiu-jitsu because of that person. And that's one thing I love about Globetrotters is, I laugh at Christian sometimes as I say that the first camp you ever go to is for the jiu-jitsu. Camp two onwards is because your friends are there and it's the experience of going on holiday with them. Yeah, there's so many regulars now. I see them in all the pictures yeah, of traveling all, all over the world. that's all we ever go to. It's yeah, crazy. It's a traveling circus and just yeah. like finding different places to meet each other. Yeah, people like sleeping in their vans that are traveling with them and just all kinds of wild stuff like yeah. that, you know. A lot of the camps that I go to on a, on a, work, on a yearly basis, like Heidelberg, I only go to because I know the same people are going to go there and I miss my friends. Oh, there's some jujitsu as well. I get to roll, but I get to go to a lovely city in the sun and see my friends. That's why I'm at a Globetrotters camp. Oh, I get to teach jujitsu as well. Because these, these are very down-to-earth coaches, like, they'll do their class, but they're there. Like, we only ever do two classes each per week and we're there for the entire week and none of us are there like sitting at the open mats you know you can ask us a question and we're going to be like nope uh, if you want to know this it's a private and 60 dollars like, oh cool you want this for my jujitsu damn i'm gonna chew your ears off for the next hour like you know we're at dinner in the evening like in like the austria camp or something you ask me a question about jujitsu oh my god i can't wait to explain it to you and we're all just excitable still about this sport, you know, when you get us onto it, as you can hear from me. And that's one thing I love about it is that, you know, I hate the idea that you could have these these teachers that show up, they want to get paid for their, you know, instantly for their time and every second that they're there. The coaching is subpar at times and you're just there for the photo and that's a worthless seminar and they're going to go straight away. Like the second that the class is done, bye, see you next week. I've got other places to be in. And yeah, these coaches are like, nope, I'm here for the love of this villain tv now i'm confused there's villain tv there's chris payne's jj let's talk about your your media my general website chris payne's bjj.com that seemed like the most sensitive for people to find me i've got my my youtube channel chris payne's bjj or villain whatever you, if you just type chris villain bjj into youtube it'll find it same with instagram and facebook it's all kind of the same at this point i've got a discord channel villain bjj or something there's links on every youtube video i think by now i've got villain cast which is like a podcast that i'm doing so i do reap the week which is a weekly thing that i'm we we did in, in as everyone did in lockdown we did podcasts in lockdown but then jujitsu we started and we thought this is way more fun in the evening and then i've also got a patreon so i do like any any kind of ideas i have in the gym that i feel embarrassed to put on a full youtube video i make for the patreon so I just talk about, you know, things that are happening in class, how it's worked, how it might not have worked, how it could help for the people. Or if they've got ideas they want me to like, answer. The three fanatics videos now. So I'm spreading out is my supervillain plan. <laughs> How'd you learn to tie your belt? Before I learned Bazoon Jiu-Jitsu, which I essentially I still haven't learned because I've never actually been tied to any particular school. So I guess in theory, I've never actually... I'm a black belt in a sport I've never done properly. But I, I did Japanese Jiu-Jitsu beforehand as a 13-year-old to... 13 to 21, I did Japanese jiu-jitsu in a gi. 
So I've, I've been tying my belt since before I respected what girls were. Like, oh, that's interesting. I could tie a jiu-jitsu belt. So that predates my sexuality, like my ability sure. to tie a jiu-jitsu belt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I've never looked at it that way. Yeah. Like, I'm more skilled that's, in that. That's the first correlation of that that we've heard on the show, for sure. 100%. It predates my puberty, my ability yeah. to tie a belt. 21, 23 years I've been able to tie a jiu-jitsu belt, so I couldn't really tell you the beginning of it. Um, <laughs> sorry, that went weird. The common question, your, your thoughts on the future of jiu-jitsu where do you where do you see it going where do you hope for it to go as well i hope it gets dragged kicking and screaming into something decent our ability to share knowledge and question orthodoxy is coming up if i see someone almost like quote the gracies these days i love them just going to the comments and just reading people pile upon them like the last gracie to enter the ufc in mma recently did not look very good and was a very poor advert for what we're doing and ibjjf losing relevancy like the amount of people now step away from that going what the hell am i doing here i'm gonna go earn some money and i think money right or wrongly is going to push our sport forward because money attracts people who want it which attracts intelligent people and intelligent people boosting bring new things to the game like the explosion of leg locks came after people started making money off leg locking people on submission only events and adcc and that attracted some smart people to come figure it out and i think the more it enters that proficient professional sphere we'll see things definitely change and the coaching practices again through communication are going to get better as well it's becoming more i don't know if we'll hit saturation maybe it may hit saturation and die off a little bit i'm not sure how that's going to go like karate and kung fu we're hitting kind of peak now with all these like celebrities are entering the game like zuckerberg the hell there's going to be almost like a almost feel like a deviation from what i was, with what I was saying earlier you have the gym jujitsu and then you have for people who wanna cosplayers warriors and savages and monsters and then you have people who just want to hurt each other and find the best way of doing it and don't give a shit it's gonna be like a i think i think it's called gi and no gi these days <laughs> let's let's just keep going like i i want i want to end my career tonight by sounds of things <laughs> here we go this will be a softball or i should say like a Geez, out of a catapult on fireball. Um, <laughs> Jiu-jitsu practitioners that you admire, hmm. current or past. Interesting practitioners or athletes. Usually, when people ask the question of, they instantly go to like, and I, again, I'm says from position of guilt is Marcelo Garcia and Roger Gracie and Hafa Mendes. You know, the guys who, who completely rinsed through in, in their prime in their divisions but the people i respect most in my jiu-jitsu are the people who got me better like the people i look up to pre as much as me and him have had disagreements and moments he made my jiu-jitsu better christian Graugart, for what he has done making my ability to travel the world on this sport and open doors for me the, the man definitely believes in karma charles harriet he took that shot on me when i was a brown belt you know he met me in the uk doing my mad little running man stuff and went this guy's weird come to the US and threw me in front of some people and took me for a ride up the East Coast and, you know, introduced me to a lot of gyms that he knew. And, and now, you know, there's, there's quite a few instances where I get to repay the favor to him and, you know, connections that I've made. Jiu-Jitsu practitioners I look up to are the people who made my life better through Jiu-Jitsu, not necessarily the athletes that you think, you know, just sports person, great, fantastic, well done for what you did in the sport, but you had no change upon my Jiu-Jitsu life. 
Daniel Bettina over in the Netherlands, him introducing me to the idea that you could smash another people person's rib cage in with pressure. I was like, fantastic. I'm going on a odyssey to figure out what the hell you just did to my body so there's like yeah all those kind of like interesting quirky people in this game that have just made my life richer can you touch on um fighting fit combat sports in bjj stafford what makes a that place unique and what is the culture so that's my gym in or the gym i teach out of in in the uk in stafford it's been running as an entity for over 25 plus years now speaking of chris i gotta read this to you because i love this paragraph on their website um fightingfitstone.com march 2009 chris paynes who was already a japanese jiu-jitsu black belt joined fighting fit and started learning submission wrestling from alan and rich unfortunately by 2010 both alan and rich were forced to stop training due to injury leaving chris to look after the gym the style of the gym, it was essentially just warehouse fighting. As in, I was taught one guard pass when I joined. And that was, see if that person can suck their dick. My coach would grab me by my head and then plunger it into the ground, into my groin. And that would open my guard. Like the worst style of can opener imaginable. And that's the only thing he'd show me. We, we had three guards. It was closed, butterfly, and half. And if you stood up, you both stood up and you started wrestling again. Weird how that's come back full circle. And everything was a crank. And I remember the words to, he, to me was, Jiu-Jitsu will attract smart people. How do you stop a smart person from thinking? Hurt them. Thank you, coach. And so, it was, you know, it was a rough gym. And then they left for their respective reasons, you know, injury and, and work and life, and whatever. And the gym owner said to me, like, you're the only person in the room who can essentially read. And I just opened a book and actually, like, yeah, essentially said, like, you know, you've, you've essentially learned some new stuff from books. You take over. <laughs> Like, that was it like, like, you can read kid like you're qualified um and that's and that was it here's some keys we didn't have belts i was the first person to ever get a belt and that's through christian and the only reason he gave me a belt is because i was being a little menace at that first globetrotters camp and he turned to me and went why are you a white belt why isn't your coach giving you a belt and he went well, i ain't got one so he went to the store cupboard picked one up and threw one at me that was my first belt, first belt promotion, was just him throwing one at my head. Because of that, because it's never been a case of me being a head coach, I'm the caretaker waiting like a puppy on the doorstep for the owners to come back. And it's been 14 years. I'm sure they'll be back soon. That's kind of always been then in the cultures that I don't like the idea that I'm the head coach. There's a difference between me and everyone else in the room. I will never take someone calling me professor. I will never put any pictures of me on the wall for you to bow to me. It's called Fighting Fit. It's not called Villain BJJ or Chris Payne's BJJ. We're a team. And I am, you know, I remember the day I got my black belt off pre and everyone was there. I said, I'm only here because you guys made me better. I couldn't have done anything without having to do it against you and you forcing me to be honest. Because I uh, that is a shared moment and a shared responsibility that's how i see the whole gym always like there's never a segregation but it was dan strauss from the uk said is that one of the most important things you can say to do when someone joins your gym is learn their name because you are your name and anyone who joins a gym it's the exact same you're here this isn't a country club for people that can afford it it's a social club for people who want to play a game and i'm just the guy who played the game the longest essentially got a, we've got a playstation we're all going to chip in towards paying for the playstation and i'm just the guy who played the game the longest i'm going to try and explain to you how i'm doing well and that's it but we're all just paying for the game wouldn't it be weird if you saw like you know it's, it's a lot of the stuff that kind of happens still in jiu-jitsu and you applied that to that scenario like i'm the best at tekken that's my picture over there if you want to get changed don't face me 
while you get changed. Call me Professor whilst I'm on this PlayStation. If I leave here, call me Chris. But on the PlayStation, it's Professor. Like, you'd sound like a nutter. I will not accept anything like that. I, and I've been called Professor when I've visited other gyms. Like, who? <laughs> no. Yeah, weird. So that's, the, yeah, the culture of Fighting Fit. It's, it's a social club of weirdos who like hurting each other. When I was 16, I was badly mugged and beaten. Like, I still have issues breathing out of half of my face because of how badly my face was smashed in. And I was a nerdy kid at school. Like, you know, I was never in detention. I was, you know, always quiet and I was a bullied kid. I then became a search engineer, search engine optimizer, you know, joined the fire service after that. But I was a nerdy kid. And so I've always got a soft spot for thinking that I am the person who's arming nerdy kids and making them more powerful than they realized they were. And so that's, again, like that kind of culture of I want you to be brought up from wherever you are and, and equity, not equality. Now, you've mentioned wrestling throughout this interview. Can you talk about the status of wrestling in the UK? Where is it now? Getting better. So I started wrestling with a guy called Ranj Singh. He is a phenomenal wrestling coach. And he teaches out the Sikh temple, the Sikh Gudwara in Wolverhampton and there's you know there's lads in there they start training at like age six and they're still wrestling at 22 in the in the back room of the Sikh temple he's coached Olympic British Olympic team British Commonwealth athletes UFC fighters etc he's, he's a phenomenal coach and that was my wrestling coach and so I think through the, the growth of MMA in the UK that we're seeing more wrestling come through but it's definitely not a we're not as heavy a sporting culture I think as the US for example we're getting better but you know, combat sports at school is unheard of. Like, you'd have to have some weird private school that has, like, a, a soft spot for some violence for boxing or wrestling or judo to appear. But by and large, you know, on a state level, public school system, non-existent. I mean, trying to even get wrestling boots when I started, you couldn't get boots, any wrestling gear in the UK. It had to be ordered in from Poland. Like, you know, some ASICs wrestling boots or some knee pads or headgear. Like, nope, non-existent. Order it from overseas, which is bonkers. And the fact that you can even order wrestling boots now must mean that it's getting more popular. You've been everywhere. I mean, in Europe, I should say. What does the wrestling world look like in, in Europe? Germany was interesting. And in I think Luta Livre, which is essentially Brazilian Nogi, landed before BJJ did. And so there's actually more Luta Livre over in the, you know, might have changed now, you know, it might have evened up a little bit, but way more Luta Livre in wrestling styles in Germany, which is always interesting. Poland's known for just being brilliant, savage wrestlers. And then the more east you get, I guess, into in a, in a ex kind of Soviet territory, that has a history of wrestling, Bulgaria and places like that. And, but I think we're behind on it in Europe, but it's usually, um, anytime I visit places that had a Soviet leniency to it tend to have more wrestlers. Well, Chris, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? Yeah, so just type Chris Paynes, that's P-A-I-N-E-S, Payne, E-S, ironically, into most social media platforms. If you've got any friends that are in any way linked to Jiu-Jitsu, they've probably friended me at some point. So I'm pretty easy to find. Chris Payne's BJJ, uh, it pops up all over the place. Anyone who ever wants to visit my gym in the UK, travelers always train for free. Yeah, drop-ins, there's never a drop-in charge. If you're not a member of the gym, just come train. Like, we want people to come meet us, and all my students are always excited to meet new people. They may be starved of care or affection, and they just need something different. Anyone who ever wants to come over and, and play in a regular class and open mat, 
come train for free. This is my life, so if you ever want me to come visit, just drop me a message. I'm happy to come anywhere in the world. There's a lot of world to see, and I'm I'm here for it. And yeah, Instagram, Facebook, I'm I'm all over those things. Just Chris Payne's BJJ or Chris Payne's, you'll find me. Listen to my podcast. Hopefully, I have some interesting stuff on there as well. All right, everyone. I am your host, Adolfo Fronda. Thanks for another week of Forever White Belt. Thanks so much again. Give us the whole subscribe, thumbs up, and the whole thing. Chris, appreciate your time. This was a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, man. No, thank you so much as well. Thank you for reaching out.